I love the book of Psalms uh, so much. Um, it's hard to say to, that you have a favorite book of the Bible, but I do love the book of Psalms. But this psalm that we turn to today is not going to be one that you're going to find on a greeting card or even a sort of a top ten list of uh, most hard-hitting psalms. Um, it's a difficult psalm to categorize. Uh, its language is clear and concrete. Uh, it uses fewer poetic devices maybe than some other psalms do. It's not a historical narrative in poem form, yet it contains pertinent historical fact. The best description I found that Psalm 81 is a prophetic psalm in that it is foreshadowing the coming of Christ. But I don't know that that really encapsulates the psalm either. So to be slightly anachronistic, and if you've looked in your bulletin already, I'd like to categorize this psalm as a gospel psalm because it clearly presents us with the character and nature of Yahweh calls people to repentance from their sins against him, and clearly displays his grace, an Old Testament foreshadowing of the gospel call to repent and believe. So let's read this psalm together, Psalm 81. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me. There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him, and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat, and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, now I pray that you will open our ears this morning to your glorious word, and that the Holy Spirit would minister to our hearts and remind us of the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. May he increase and I decrease. And it's his name I pray. Amen. So within these three rich stanzas of this psalm, uh, we have four calls. And so these will be our four main points today as we work our way through this psalm. Uh, the first is a call to rejoice, which is in verses 1 through 4. Then we have a call to remember in verses 5 through 10. We have a call to repent in verses 11 through 13 and then a call to receive in verses 14 through 16. So that's a call to rejoice, a call to remember, a call to repent, and a call to receive. So first, let's hear that call to rejoice in verses 1 through 4. We're plainly instructed in the first verse to rejoice, to sing aloud to God our strength and shout for joy. This is probably one of the most common commands in the entire Bible, and most of them are within the book of Psalms itself. We might consider it one of the marks of Yahweh's people, 
that they praise their sovereign God with lifted voices, just as we have been this morning. This singing here is a joyful confession that we are insufficient on our own because God is the strength of his people. We are weak, and Yahweh is strong. We are needy, and he gives us everything we need. We can sing with Moses in Exodus 15:2 that the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Or we could praise him for this as well, this taken from 2 Timothy 2:1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Yahweh has always been the strength of his people. Not only do the people of God extol his sweet virtues in songs of praise, but those songs of praise are fittingly accompanied by the sweet lyre that we see in verse 2. It's important for the mood of the music to fit the theme of the words. It would be strange to sing a song of praise to God to a dark melody uh, that would be more fit to a, a psalm of lament, for instance. So we sing sweet songs to sweet melodies. All this singing as well is done at an appointed time. You'll see that in verse 3. Psalm 81 is actually used in the liturgy of the Feast of Trumpets, uh, which was a festival commanded by the law to be the first day of the seventh month. Trumpets were to be blown, thus the Feast of Trumpets. Offerings were to be made to God, and no work was to be done. And then the Day of Atonement would follow nine days later. And in fact, the timing of those feasts map out to the positions of the moon that are mentioned in verse 3. The, the Feast of Trumpets is at the new moon, and then at the full moon comes uh, the Day of Atonement. Old Testament Israel had a whole schedule of, of such feasts and gatherings that were prescribed in the law. The feast served Israel by helping them call to mind the goodness of God, remembering his acts toward them in times past, and to make progress in the knowledge of the word, as it would be read and sung during all these gatherings. In Christ, we have the sure fulfillment of all such feasts, and so we have no need to hold to them any longer, as we get to see the faithfulness of God boldly proclaimed here every Lord's Day, and we have a rich spiritual feast upon which we dine. But graciously, in these times, God preserved his people in these types and shadows that were presented in the law. And those who believed in Christ to come through participating in those types and shadows knew peace with God, even while unbelieving Israel around them merely went through the motions. He blessed the nation of Israel in their times of obedience, and he used them mightily to mark out a peculiar people from whom the Messiah would come. So part of being that peculiar people is remembering the acts of Yahweh toward them. That's why we're going to move here in a few verses to the story of the Exodus, which is told and retold often in the Old Testament because it's such a powerful example of Yahweh's sovereign power to deliver his people from even the darkest of trials, to preserve a people for his own pleasure out of the absolute pit of suffering and exile. Remembering this account fortified the people of Israel through many later exiles brought about by their own sins until they were restored again by God. That brings us to our second point, the call to remember. That's in verses 5 through 10. So if we're going to sweetly praise Yahweh, we must know who he is and what he's done. What are his great deeds that have animated our souls to sing? 
So we're provided with just a few reminders here stemming from the Exodus account. So look at verse uh, 5. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. And then we switch, we switch perspectives here to, a, uh, to a, an individual. I hear a language I had not known. Think of a young Hebrew slave in Egypt who's only been acquainted with the language of his Egyptian masters, whether at work or at home, because the generations of his family became well acquainted with their master's culture. They would have never heard Hebrew at home, perhaps. And actually, the, the Hebrew language, uh, the language of God, spoken and recorded here in Hebrew, would have been foreign to his ear. But he hears a language he had not known, but he knows it now, because Yahweh makes himself known for the purpose of causing his people to remember. These are the three things in, in, this, uh, in this section here that Yahweh calls on his people to remember. So we have a few sub-points. In trying to be a good Baptist, I alliterated them for you. So the first sub-point under this call to remember is his promised providence. His promised providence. Then we'll also see his protective precepts. And then we'll see his precious promises. And these are all things that Yahweh alone does. He needs no help from the people in any of these. They are his actions on their behalf in every instance. So first, his promised providence in verses 6 and 7. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. He frees his people from the back-breaking burdens that people have placed on them. Hear this from Exodus 5, verses 4 through 9. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of this land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it, and pay no regard to lying words. So there was no way of escape for the people of Israel on their own from the heaviness of their bondage. Pharaoh himself would see to that in his hardness of heart. Remember that through all the, the history of Joseph and his acts in, in Egypt had been forgotten by Pharaoh and the people. And Egypt had simply returned to their prior history of hatred against Israel. So instead of listening to Moses and letting them go, Pharaoh instructed the foreman to press them even more. But God knew, and in his perfect timing, and by the means of a series of frightening plagues, he sent Moses and Aaron to walk his people out of captivity and unload them of their labor. We know the taste of this kind of deliverance only too well as Christians because we have been set free from the curse of slavery under sin and called to faith in Jesus Christ, whose yoke is easy and his burden is light. This is one of the strongest messages of the Exodus to us. And because we've been set free, we know that living a repentant and joyful life before our God is not irksome or unrewarded service. But the life of sin is irksome and slavish, 
and we should sing for joy when the sinner repents of his sin, believes in Christ, and is set free. Our second providence here is of Yahweh's open ear toward his people. In distress you called, and I delivered you. Another quote from Exodus. Exodus 2, verses 23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, that's not to say that God ever forgot his covenant that he made with them, but he was about to act in accordance with that covenant. But that progression of that verse really is something, that the groans came up to God, who remembers his covenant and never forgot, and he saw and he knew, and he acted, he delivered. Yahweh is all-knowing and all-powerful, ever mindful of his covenant and his covenant people. He doesn't sit idly by to wait for them to figure out how to save themselves. He seeks and he saves. Next, we're reminded of a third providence, that Yahweh answered in the secret place of thunder. So this reference to Yahweh's presence on Mount Sinai is actually something I find kind of funny, the way that it's put here, because the place wasn't secret. It was actually pretty spectacular. Thunder itself isn't secret. It's very public, and you can hear it crash from miles away. And we know from the, the testimony in Exodus that darkness descended on the mountain that the people weren't allowed to approach, but they could certainly see it, and they were struck with fear. But of course, that isn't the secret part here we're talking about. The secret part is that Yahweh spoke to Moses on the mountain and delivered the law to him, written first on tablets with God's own finger. His answer was covenant, containing laws and ordained feasts and design dimensions for the tabernacle and more, and he gave it directly to Moses. This law serves as a picture of the utter holiness of God, and when we look into it, serves us even now as a reminder of our sinfulness and our inability to meet his righteous standards. And the law helps us to see the perfection of Christ's obedience on our behalf. In the secret place, Yahweh spoke to Moses like a man speaks to his friend. Yahweh is not far off. He is neither silent nor is he remote. He comes close and he makes himself clearly known. In fact, he's answered us in the pages of Scripture as well. We not only have the account that's being referenced here, but we have the entire counsel of God in the pages of Scripture, his authoritative word. If only we would take up that word and read it, hear it read and preached, and apply it. The fourth providence here is the testing of Yahweh's people. We see it in... Uh, the end there of verse 7. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Turn, if you would, to Exodus 17. We're going to read this passage. Verses uh, 1 through 7 of Exodus 17. 
all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin. Boy, isn't that a fitting title. (laughs) Moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us with our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there at the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place, the name of that place, Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So Moses accuses the Israelites in that passage of putting God to the test, of testing God in their quarrel over water. And yet it was God testing the people, as we see in the psalm here, a test they failed. And actually, even Moses himself failed the test. In Numbers 20, this incident is what results in Moses not being allowed to enter the promised land because he said, and as it quotes in Numbers 20, shall we... Bring water for you out of the rock. And he struck the rock twice instead of once, as God commanded, only to strike it once, making it look like they could take credit for what only God could do. Now, Yahweh has every right to test his people, and it's actually to our advantage to have our faith tested by our Heavenly Father, who tests but never tempts his beloved children. As it says in James 1, verses 2 through 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Those times of trial come with great difficulty, obviously, but the outcome is a stronger and more robust confidence in the providence of our sovereign God and greater reliance on his mercy. That is a good gift. In light of his goodness, we cannot deny that we are a sinful people. And by beholding the perfections of our God, as we've been reminded so far in this psalm, we can't help but be struck by how sinful we truly are. The word Meribah that is used here for uh, naming the rock, that means quarreling, which is why quarreling was used in that passage. And that word is practically a biblical byword for the sinfulness of man in the face of the perfections of God. And we can't say that we're any better than they were. Next, we're going to consider Yahweh's protective precepts, and that's in verses 8 and 9. We just saw that Yahweh's ear was open to his children in their need, and now he calls on them to hear his word. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me. Hear, O my people, says the God who has the power to open the ear that's sinfully closed, 
to make the word of life flow in. This word admonish means to bear witness or to say again and again, to repeat, to warn, and even to correct. God is doing all of this here by reminding his people of his word. The first commandment is stated here in verse 9. Although it's restated somewhat, slightly in different words than we might read in Exodus 20, but it's still the word of God. There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. The word for the sin referenced here is idolatry, one of Israel's absolute favorite sins. They gladly engaged in syncretism, which is the mixing of the right worship of God with literally anything else, giving what only belongs to Yahweh, the human soul, and pledging it to the unworthy. Syncretism is anathema, and over and over in Scripture, it's actually associated with marital infidelity or even prostitution, the nation of Israel being unfaithful to her covenant-keeping God. Yahweh's saying here, do not harbor these idols among you and do not participate in their cults. You have been called to a holy calling. As 1 Peter 2.9 says, believers are a chosen people, a royal priesthood and a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. The bride of Christ should strive to kill sin, to remove the idols from among us and to have no accord with that which is unworthy. Such idolatry can take many shapes and forms, but the hallmark of idolatry is that it wants you to forget the Lord your God. So he delivers the strong reminder, I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So this is the great and living God who says this and delivers this reminder. He is at the core of that commandment. Not the pretending false gods of Egypt, nor the Baals, or Asherah, or Dagon of the pagans. This is the one true and living God who's acted on their behalf. So why would, why would we and why would they desire to sin so grievously against Yahweh their God when we've seen how mightily he's worked to provide for their every need? Yet we still struggle in the flesh, even knowing all of this. We are fickle in our love, but he is unwavering in his love and care for his people. Despite how deep and dark our sin looks in our moments of despair, we know that because Yahweh is the covenant-keeping God, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That he who began a good work in you, who have trusted him, will bring it to completion at the last day. That includes a war to kill sin within us, and it also means that we worship the God who saves us, and Him alone. Now, we know full well from the context of Scripture that Israel did keep strange gods among them, and they did bow down to many foreign gods. So if we weren't thinking, we might assume this is now the place where God's going to bring the hammer down on them. And yet, we see something quite different than that at the end of verse 10. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Rather than striking the people down, the living God, the Holy One, against whom they've sinned, says, open your mouth wide 
and I will fill it. This is the third point of remembrance here, his precious promise. The people had no right to call out for help when they were hungry or thirsty in the desert because they had turned their backs on Yahweh again and again when they were unhappy. And actually, we just saw that in Meribah, right? Uh, in this example that we're given in the psalm. They broke the commandments that they promised to keep. And yet this promise, this promise, open your mouth wide and I will fill it, still remained for those who hoped in the Messiah to come. And it remains for us. The heart of a father still feeds his children, even when they've done badly and received admonishment. You might remember the words of, of Christ uh, where he said, even the wicked father would not give a scorpion if his child asked for an egg. So too your father gives good things to his children. So we can stand on this promise, and actually it's, it's stated as well in Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So open your hungry mouth wide like an expectant and helpless infant, and he will fill it with the richest and heartiest of food. No matter how desperately hungry, Yahweh is sufficient to satisfy every need. We're going to hear more about food later in this psalm, but let's let this promise stand to open your mouth wide and Yahweh will fill it. That is his heart for his people that he has called to himself. We must receive his food with empty hands and empty stomachs. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. We have indeed received precious and very great promises. So having been reminded of the law of Moses and the promises of God, we now hear the call to repent. That's our third point. Not only did the people of Israel fail that test at Meribah by choosing to disbelieve God and try to put him to the test, ultimately the nation of Israel would not submit to their God, eventually yelling for the crucifixion of the Messiah. They wouldn't listen to Yahweh's word and follow him in obedience, as it says in 11. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. They had stubborn ears and didn't listen to his voice. And the same can be said for us as well. Before the Holy Spirit regenerated us and brought us to repentant belief, we are just like the deaf man in Mark 7.33 who could only have his hearing restored at the hand of Jesus. Actually, at his fingers. Jesus put his fingers in his ear and restored his hearing. Only Christ can open the stubborn ear that hates his word. Then, and only then, faith comes by hearing that same word that had been hated before. But we know that this sinfully closed ear was why Jesus spoke in parables. He quotes Isaiah in Matthew 13, 4 and 15, 14 and 15, verses 14 and 15, and he expounds on it, saying, here's the Isaiah quote, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. And then Jesus adds these words, For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, in turn, 
and I would heal them. The stubborn, unhearing ear and the stubborn, unbelieving heart is the hallmark of the total depravity of mankind. Israel had stubborn hearts, like all sinners, bent on believing that submission to God is slavery rather than liberty. How foolish the heart of stone is. Zechariah 7, verses 11 and 12, uses a a really great phrase uh, that any Bible quizzers in the room here will remember. Quoting from Zechariah 7, But they, speaking of Israel, refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words of the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. Diamond hard. It's the hardest substance known to man, is the diamond. That is the plight of every sinful heart, whether in Old Testament Israel or today. Diamond hard rebellion. We are desperately opposed to God by our nature and to his word, because each and every one of us were born cosmic traitors against a holy God. But in this instance, Yahweh gave them over to these stubborn hearts. As it says in verse 12, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts, to follow their own counsels. But in his mercy, we who have believed can say this with full confidence, that he is pleased to give a heart replacement, removing the heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh, which is full of desire to walk humbly with our God. That is the promise of the new covenant, a heart that is eager to love and obey our Savior and to tell the world what he has done. This is the promise of the new covenant. But Israel, instead, was intent on being autonomous, of being a law unto themselves, rather than being governed by God's law. So he gave those unrepentant ones over. I don't think I need to highlight any similarities uh, with our own times. I'm sure you can think of of an example of uh, any sort of folks who... Uh, might want to be a law unto themselves and to put um, the standards of the word of God behind them. This phrase that we see in verse 12, to follow their own counsels, is a good word uh, for what we see in our rebellious culture today. And in fact, it's used often in Scripture uh, of a way to uh, describe when the nation of Israel would go against God's word, go astray, and they would find disaster. But the heart of our God, as shown in verse 13, is to be in close communion with his people. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. This isn't the heart or the desire of a tyrant, but as said before, of a loving father, bringing his beloved children into communion with himself to honor and glorify him as their all in all. And in this instance, To listen to God is to hear his admonishment and to turn away from our sins and cling to our Redeemer. This is repentance, what we would call repentance. And this is not penance, as Rome would prescribe, where we have to do certain actions set by a priest to get back into God's good graces. 
No, a humble and contrite heart God will not despise. And he does the reconciling work on their behalf in Christ. So we must hear the bad news of our sin in order to see the surpassing greatness of salvation and to desire to leave our sins behind because of his kind love, not to gain it, but because of his kind love. And when the regeneration of the Holy Spirit is worked on us, we gladly cast our sins on Christ and run to him for our salvation. And we happily walk in his ways. Romans 2 Verses 4 and 5, speaking to the unrepentant. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's why we place the call to repent and believe, to call on the sinners. Don't store up wrath any longer and wait for the day to come. Run to Christ. Have him pay the debt of your sin and enjoy him forever. Christ's blood covers each person who has repented from sin and turns to Jesus. And their sins are removed because they've all been placed on him. And in turn, believers receive his righteousness. No magic formulas, only the miracle of double imputation. Our sins paid for and carried away by Christ and his righteousness credited to us. Now our Savior has one more call in this text. Having beheld the only God, been shown our sin and called to repentance, we hear the call to receive Just as he delivered his protective precepts earlier, Yahweh shows us his intent to protect his people in subduing their enemies in verse 14. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. We know from the history of Old Testament Israel that their armies engaged in battle many times. Many of the leaders of Israel, like Joshua and King David, were well-known for serving the people of God, even by the sword. Even larger than that, God also commissioned wicked nations to topple other wicked nations to the benefit of Israel, only for that conquering nation to be justly punished for its sin once the deed was done. That is actually the major background of the book of Habakkuk, for instance. God, in his sovereignty, has every right to exact that kind of punishment for the good of his people, and for the glory of his name. The same thing can be said for every person who remains in their sin. They stand condemned already, as John 3, 17 and 18 says. Now, we don't celebrate the condemnation of sinners, but God's justice will be satisfied in the punishment of sin, either by the just punishment of the stubborn sinner or by the punishments of those sins being carried by Christ. It's a fearsome thing to have Yahweh's hand turned against you. So our call to the world must always be to repent of your sins and be reconciled to God. And that's because there's never been a better method of subduing enemies than the power of the gospel. 
which subdues enemies by turning them into friends, even brothers and sisters. We know also by the express word of Christ that even the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, so that all enemies who would seek to destroy the kingdom that God is building will be thwarted by his hand. No one can stand against God's purposes. He will accomplish all that he decreed, and he has decreed to build his church. Verse 15 here, there's this word cringe, that those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him. Now this word, the original Hebrew word that's translated here as cringe is actually used elsewhere in Scripture for lying. So this is the false face of a liar here, having been... uh, having seen the holiness of God uh, and, and rejecting his word. It's the false face of a liar cringing, trying to smile through a frown. Or perhaps it's the cringe of someone who knows that he's been beaten, but is trying to look like he isn't. He denies the truth, yet lies concerning God and his covenant. And as the rest of the verse says, the punishment for sin is severe. It's an eternity in hell. It is a fate that will last forever. That is a truth that simply cannot be understated. So having called on them to listen to his word, reminded them of his law and his deeds and his promises, he delivers yet another promise of sustenance. In verse 16, But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat, and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. He who would subdue our enemies will also subdue our hunger and our thirst with rich and sweet food that nourishes rather than spoils. Now Israel ate of miraculous bread, although it didn't contain wheat, in the wilderness, and that was called manna. It appeared on the ground in the morning, and the Israelites would gather it and eat it. But what would happen if they gathered more than a day's share of it? Exodus 16 tells us that it would rot and would get wormy if any leftovers were kept, except in preparation for the Sabbath. But God's promise wasn't to feed his people with manna forever, but to give them the finest of the wheat, the best bread to live on. Jesus makes a direct parallel between the momentary manna and the everlasting satisfaction found in him, and we'll actually find that if we turn to John 6, verses 31, if you'll turn with me there. John 6, and we'll start in verse 31. So Jesus is speaking to the crowd here. And they ask him a question while he's speaking. So in John 6, 31, we'll go through verse 51. They ask Jesus, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, 
and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has, been, has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. All of us here who have repented of our sins and turned to Christ in faith have tasted that very bread. We're not talking about eating bread that keeps you from dying physically. We're talking about spiritually. That new life is given. That a, a new life has been born a second birth. We who've trusted in Christ feed on this bread spiritually every time we approach the Lord's table as well. We don't have to pretend that the elements become the body and blood of our Lord to receive spiritual nourishment from the ordinance of the table. Christ has satisfied the justice of God on our behalf and has satisfied the hunger of his people for eternal life. It is all found in him and in no one else and in nothing else. In Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. So he gives the fine wheat for our sustenance, but he also gives honey from the rock, which sounds very much like a miracle. So how does a rock give honey? Well, at the time, clefts in rocks or hollow trees were where bees made their hives. They would convert a barren place into something that yields one of the sweetest foods you could taste. We might, we might even think back to the waters of Meribah, where God made water gush from a rock. It is a miracle. And despite all the trials and all the darkness and the sinfulness and the strife alluded to in this psalm and that we experience in our own lives of faith, we end this today, this psalm, on an image of sweetness. God delights to give his people delight, delight in him. This is at the heart of that well-known first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. David says in Psalm 19 that the words of God are sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. They certainly are. And they're still sweet when they're pointing out our sin and calling us to repentance 
and when they're reminding us of the great and precious promises that he has established for us. So why do we sing? Why do we raise a glad shout to God, our strength? Because he has acted so strongly on our behalf in his providence. He has admonished us by his precepts as beloved children and reconciled sinners. He's promised to provide for our every need and to delight us with the sweetness of his countenance as our heavenly father. So hear the word of Christ, repent and believe. For any who have not heard, hear now the call of the gospel of King Jesus. Repent of your sins, believe in him, and enjoy fellowship with him forever. Starting at this very moment, he takes the diamond-hard, rebellious heart and replaces it with a heart of flesh. He frees you from the slavery of sin to blood-bought, adoptive sonship. Every man and woman who believes is a new creature in Christ Jesus, having tasted of the bread of life, the crucified, risen, and returning Son of God and Son of Man, the righteous and rightful King. The sweet promises found in him will never become diluted. They are hearty, and they are fresh, and they are sweet, and they are complete for every believer. So taste and see that Yahweh is good. Let's pray. We love you, O Lord, our strength, and we thank you for your grace toward us in Christ. We come to you with no credit of our own to commend ourselves, only open hands eagerly awaiting your supply. Keep us in your love, guide our hearts and our ears to be attentive to your word, and cause us to be satisfied in you alone. We eagerly come to your table now, where you will feed and nourish our faith with the finest of wheat. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.